0: I'd ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9, listen carefully as I read this chapter from God's holy and inspired Word. As I read, let me remind you, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and to drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the same sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. The word of the Lord. we're a little over 20 sermons into our study of 1 Corinthians and we're making good headway through this very important part of the New Testament, we now find ourselves in a section of this epistle that deals with the subject of Christian liberty. Apostle Paul first introduced this topic back in chapter 6 when he told the Corinthians that just because something is lawful for a Christian to do doesn't mean that it is always helpful or wise for a Christian to do. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. A number of the Christians in Corinth were insisting on their liberty at any price, but Paul is now reining them in. He's helping them to understand that love and not liberty is the highest virtue of the Christian faith. As Christian men and women, there is a very real sense in which we are our brother's keeper. And because of that reality, there are times in life when our liberties as Christians must be voluntarily restrained for the sake of our Christian love. Corinthians did not seem to understand the difference between the word can and the word should. But Paul is now making the case in this letter, just because you can do something as a Christian, doesn't mean that you should do it. And indeed, as we learned last time, there are occasions when the exercise of our liberty would be a sin against our Christian neighbor and therefore would be a sin against our God. Recall, I hope, from chapter 8 that Paul applied this principle of Christian liberty to a specific conflict within the Corinthian church that had to do with the buying and the eating of meat. Back in first century, almost all the meat that was available for purchase in the market had been offered at some point along the way to a pagan idol. And because of that, some of the Corinthians who had come out of these pagan religions did not feel that they had the liberty to buy and eat the meat. Instead, they had chosen to commit themselves to a vegetarian lifestyle. But there were also other believers in the church who understood that an idol is nothing but a block of wood or stone. And as a result of that knowledge, they felt they had the liberty to buy and to eat as much meat as they wanted. A rift had opened up in the church of Corinth a rift over the dinner table. The unity of the Holy Spirit was being disturbed by a prioritizing of liberty over love. It was into this difficult, divisive situation that the Apostle Paul writes chapters 8 to 10 to help the believers understand the limits of their liberty when it comes to disputable matters. These issues where the Bible does not speak clearly and definitively. Although Paul is in basic theological agreement with the meat-eating party in the church and agrees that Christians do have the liberty to eat this meat in certain contexts, he is also sensitive to the fact that not everyone in the church has this knowledge. Not everyone in the church is able to do it in good conscience. And so on this matter of eating the meat offered to idols, Paul lays down some basic ground rules that we can apply to many analogous situations in our own modern time and culture. Although Paul will later on tell the church in chapter 10, nobody is to eat this idle food in the context of a religious ceremony. He does allow the Christians to buy the meat in the marketplace. He does allow them to eat meat that is put on their plate when they're visiting someone else's home. Paul affirms very clearly in chapter 8 the liberty of the Christian, but at the same time, he tells the meat eaters to be sensitive to their vegetarian brethren and not to flaunt their liberty in such a way that they would wound the conscience of a weaker brother or sister. In other words, Paul is saying the exercise of Christian love must take priority over the exercise of liberty, and that a failure to love a fellow Christian in this way is actually to sin against Jesus Christ himself. Now in short, that was the principle that we learned a couple weeks ago in chapter 8. And now in chapter 9, Paul is going to show the Corinthians how this principle of Christian liberty works itself out in his own life and in his own ministry. Paul is going to illustrate the principle, and at the same time, he is going to show the stronger brothers in Corinth he is willing to practice what he is calling them to do. Paul too is willing to lay aside his liberty for the sake of love. And so that's the connection here between chapter 8 and chapter 9. In chapter 8, Paul establishes the principle of Christian liberty. Then in chapter 9, Paul illustrates how that principle of liberty works itself out in his own life, in his own ministry. Part of Paul's intention here in the ninth chapter is to provide an illustration, but there is more going on here that becomes obvious when we dig in and read the opening verses of this chapter. Let's look at the first three verses again. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. You know, in addition to illustrating an important principle of Christian ethics in these verses, Paul is also defending his ministry against a certain segment of the church that was trying to discredit him and to call into question his authority as an apostle. In previous chapters of this letter, we've seen some of the opposition Paul was facing from members of the church, a church that he himself had founded a few short years earlier. As we learn back in the opening chapter, the church in Corinth was dividing into various factions with some of the members claiming to follow Peter and others claiming to follow Paul, others claiming to follow Apollos, even though all of these pastors and leaders were of one mind and heart in the work of the gospel. A sectarian spirit had taken over in Corinth. The members of the church were seeking after worldly wisdom rather than pursuing the word of the cross. And as you might remember from our previous sermons, one of the issues that was dividing the church, one of the things that was fostering this sectarian spirit was a preoccupation with the speaker, with the speaking style, over and above the message that was being proclaimed. Some of the Corinthian believers were far more concerned about a Paulish presentation. They were far more concerned about fancy rhetorical flourishes than they were about the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And some of these proud and arrogant Corinthians had started to criticize Paul because they did not like his preaching style and because they felt that Paul was not quite up to snuff. Paul's credibility as a public speaker was being called into question and undermined. But in addition to that, we now learn in chapter 9 that his identity as an apostle of Christ was also being challenged. Certain members of the church were denying that Paul was a true apostle of Christ and one of the reasons they were leveling this charge at him had to do with the fact that Paul was not insisting upon a salary. Now that might seem as like a very strange connection at first glance, but once you understand a little bit more about the cultural background, it makes perfect sense. In the ancient Greek world, the amount of money that a traveling teacher or philosopher required for their services was directly related to their importance and their credibility. An important or a well-known philosopher could demand a great deal of money from the audience, and by contrast, a speaker who was not all that gifted, a speaker that was not all that eloquent, would not usually ask for a lot of money. The perceived importance and credibility of the speaker in that culture was largely determined by the amount of money that changed hands. And if the speaker didn't demand to get paid very well for his services, it was commonly assumed that he didn't really have anything to say that was worth hearing. And into this context of traveling itinerant philosophers marches the Apostle Paul. Here's a man who claims to have the most important message in the world about the most important man who's ever lived, but yet here's a traveling speaker who refuses to collect any type of payment for his services. As a traveling speaker, Paul did not fit into the cultural expectations of the Greeks And it seems as though some of the Corinthians assumed the reason that Paul was not asking them for money was because Paul was an inferior speaker and that Paul was self-conscious of his own weakness and inferiority. Now the other cultural issue that we need to understand this morning is the fact that ancient Greek society was dominated by a system of wealthy patrons who used money as a way of social gaining social capital and exercising control in that world in that culture wealthy patrons would take great pride in being able to financially support a well-known philosopher by giving money to that person they would actually be putting the speaker in their own social debt Very often in ancient Greece, money was a way of manipulation. It was a means of exercising control. And this is one of the main reasons, I think, Paul did not think it was a good idea to take money from the Greek people he was ministering to. Paul knew that there were worldly people in the church who would use money as to try and manipulate him. And because of that, Paul often chose in that cultural context to minister the gospel free of charge and to earn a living in some other way. And if you read the the Gospels, the book of Acts, you'll know that Paul's trade was a tent maker. That's how he often supported himself. Paul didn't want any strings attached to his gospel ministry. Paul was not about to become anyone's puppet. And this is the cultural situation that is hovering just below the surface of the text. For a number of very good and logical reasons, Paul has decided not to draw a salary from the church, and because of that decision, some of the members are spreading a rumor that he is not really a true apostle, he doesn't really have anything valuable to say, because if he did, he would certainly be insisting on getting a paycheck and on getting a big one. Paul's character is being maligned. Paul's authority is being undermined and Paul is now ready to confront his opponents first of all by establishing his right to receive financial compensation secondly by explaining why he has chosen to relinquish that right and to minister the gospel free of charge. And so with God's help, that is where we're heading this morning as the Apostle Paul hits two birds with one single stone illustrating the principle of Christian liberty from his own life and at the same time defending his apostolic authority against the Corinthians. You'll notice in the first two verses of our text, Paul begins by defending his identity as an apostle of Jesus Christ, not because Paul has a wounded ego and a prideful heart, but rather because Paul knows, Paul understands, the integrity of the gospel itself hangs in the balance. Because if it, re- if it is really true that Paul is a false apostle, it logically follows the message he was proclaiming is also false, or at the very least, is highly suspect. That's the reason why Paul is asking all of these rhetorical questions in the opening verses of the chapter. He is reminding the Corinthian church of what is already obvious or what ought to be obvious by this point in their relationship. Paul reminds the believers he fits the criteria of a true apostle as defined in the opening chapter of the book of Acts. Namely, he is an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus. And if that is not evidence enough to support his identity, Paul points the Corinthians to their own existence as further proof. A church that Paul had planted a few years earlier. A church that had flourished and grown under his teaching and his preaching and his leadership. A little later on in the book of Second Corinthians, chapters 11 and 12, Paul will continue to defend himself against a group of false teachers. And in Second Corinthians 12, verse 12, he reminds the Corinthians, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You see, friends, in those early years of church expansion and church growth, God had validated Paul's apostolic credentials not only with numerous conversions, but also by miracles that could not be denied or explained away. These were miracles that associated Paul's apostolic ministry with the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was visible proof that Paul was, was serving with the approval that he was ministering with the full authority of Christ himself. Paul's first order of business here in chapter 9 is to defend the gospel by defending his identity and authority. But secondly, in verse 3 and following, we see the apostle asserting his right to receive financial compensation from the Corinthian church. As Paul defends himself in these verses against the low blows of his opponents, he wants them to know he is not suffering from some kind of inferiority complex. A sense of inferiority, a sense of weakness, is not the reason why Paul declined a paycheck. And so he gives the believers here in these verses a number of reasons why he had a perfect right to be financially compensated. Paul reminds them, first of all, the right to financial compensation was a right that was claimed by the other apostles, the other pastors who are active in the early church, who are even traveling with their wives and their families at the expense of the people they were serving. By way of a side comment here, this text proves beyond any doubt the Roman Catholic tradition of prohibiting clergy from getting married has absolutely no foundation in the Word of God. If we are to believe the Catholic claim that Peter is the first pope, and I do not believe it, but even if we were to believe it, this text proves that the first pope was in fact a married man who not only had a wife, but traveled with her and ministered alongside of her in the work of the gospel. That's all I'm going to say about that issue this morning, but I hope that the implications are obvious to everyone. It is a very dangerous thing to concoct a man-made rule where the Bible allows for freedom and I believe that we are still seeing the bitter fruit of that error in our society today with scandal upon scandal upon scandal. Paul's first argument for financial compensation is rooted in the example of Peter and the apostles, but his second argument here in this text is rooted in the common experience that a person who works hard gets paid for his labor. And so here in these verses, Paul offers us the example of a soldier and a farmer and a shepherd. No soldier who is active in military service is required to fulfill his duty and then to work a second job to provide an income for his family. And by the same token, no farmer is expected to slave away out in the vineyard without receiving some kind of material reward for his hard work. Nor, says Paul, is a shepherd going to tend the flock all day and night and not have something to put on the table so he can provide a basic living. I think Paul's point in these examples is very clear whether you're from the 1st century or whether you're from the 21st century. If you work hard, there is an expectation that you will receive some kind of financial and material benefit. And if that principle is true of the soldier and of the farmer and of the shepherd, is it not also true of the dedicated and hardworking minister of the gospel? I hope you can see the kind of argument that Paul is constructing here in this chapter. You know, it's sad to say, there is a common perception in modern society that pastors and missionaries are basically lazy people who work for one hour on Sunday morning and then get paid for a full week's work. Believe it or not, I've had people say it to my face. I think many people both inside and outside the Christian church, have that general perception of gospel ministry, but in truth, anyone who has been active in the ministry for any amount of time knows better than that. Because the one hour that you see on Sunday morning is usually the fruit of about 25 or 30 hours of study and preparation and prayer. And that is not to speak about all the other responsibilities that come along with tending the flock of God week in and week out. Now friends, I'm not making that observation this morning to pat myself on the back. I'm not suggesting this morning that there are not some lazy ministers out there who are wasting their time, who are taking advantage of the flock that God has called them to serve. But I do say it this morning because it gives you some important biblical perspective. Pastorate is not always an easy calling to fulfill. There is a reason why many people who go into full-time vocational ministry do not stay there very long. Here in this text, the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthians to realize his calling as an apostle and a pastor requires long hours, hard work, and he wants to remind them that hard labor of this nature usually entails some form of financial compensation. If it's true of the soldier, if it's true of the farmer, if it's true of the shepherd, it is also true of the pastor and the missionary and the evangelist. Paul's third piece of evidence for financial compensation comes from the Old Testament law in verses 8 to 12. The book of Deuteronomy, God makes an allowance for oxen to eat as they are busy working out in the field. And Paul's reason for quoting this rather obscure passage from the Old Testament is to make the point, if God cares that much about a common farm animal, we can know for certain that He cares a great deal more for men and women who are created in His own image. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If it is reasonable to allow your farm animal to eat as it is treading out the grain, it is certainly reasonable to provide an adequate living for your pastor as he labors hard to minister the Word of God and to tend to the flock of God. And then finally, Paul pulls out the trump card in verse 14. He appeals directly to the teaching of the Lord Jesus who said in Luke chapter 10, verse 7 that the laborer deserves his wages. And that final piece of evidence all by itself is decisive in proving the point. Here in the first 14 verses of this chapter, Paul has made a watertight case for financial compensation in the ministry. And in so doing, he has demonstrated that his decision not to receive funding from the Corinthians does not stem from a lack of knowledge about his rights or from a sense of weakness and inferiority. Paul is well aware He works every bit as hard as anyone else in the church and he has a right to be financially compensated for his labor. Paul understands his rights perfectly well. He could have insisted upon exercising that right. He could have demanded to receive a salary from this church. The main principle that is of all this teaching is summarized for us in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Of course, the answer to that rhetorical question is no, it's not too much. In fact, it is quite reasonable. It is quite logical. You no, know, brothers and sisters, I have to confess this morning, I feel uncomfortable preaching on a text like this one. Because it feels so very self-serving. It feels so self-congratulatory to do it. I'm spending time with you in this text this morning, not because I'm unhappy in any way with my salary, not because I have some kind of axe to grind when it comes to financial giving, but rather I'm spending time in this text this morning because it is part of the inspired Word of God and because there is a principle in this text that we must all understand, that we must all embrace as members of the New Testament church. Biblically speaking, there is a clear obligation on each and every local church to provide financial compensation for those who give of their time to minister the gospel and to faithfully shepherd the flock of God. And I am of the conviction, friends, that any local church that has the financial ability to support the pastor and his family has a biblical mandate to do so. I believe that is the principle that is being taught here in this very text. And by extension, very practically, that means that each of the members of the local church who is benefiting spiritually from the ministry should make it a priority to give back to the work of the Lord. Now that being said, It's true there is no rigid law given to us in the New Testament regarding how much we should give back to the local church, but throughout the Bible we see very clearly the principle of tithing. And I believe that it is a good principle for every Christian to put into practice or at least to work toward. Tithing essentially means setting apart 10% of our gross income to give to the local church and then giving above and beyond that 10% as God leads you to do so. And so I want to leave you this morning with a challenge to give generally, generously to the work of the local church, not only to support me as your pastor, but also to support all of the other ministries that this church is, is uh, supporting, to support this church's calling, this church's mission, this church's vision. And as the main teaching elder of this flock called Rosedale, I think it's important for me to take the opportunity this morning to say thank you. Thank you, church, for taking good care of me. Thank you for taking good care of my family. Thank you for providing a salary that enables me to to time to study and to preach, to disciple, pray, unencumbered by the need to take an outside job. I want to thank you, brothers and sisters, for giving generously to the work of the Lord. I want you to know this morning, I don't take it for granted. I'm absolutely committed to fulfilling my ministry to the best of my ability for as long as God calls me to serve as your pastor. It's not a burden to serve the Lord. It's an incredible privilege to serve the Lord in the local church. It is an incredible privilege to be part of this local church family. I love you. I'm blessed to serve you on behalf of the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, from the perspective of the local congregation, there's an important principle we need to glean from this text, but there is also an important reminder in this text that applies directly to those of us who are pastors and church leaders. Paul's example here in 1 Corinthians shows beyond any doubt, financial compensation should never be the motivation for entering into full-time vocational ministry. The prospect of material reward should never, ever be a reason for entering the pastorate because the truth of the matter, friends, is that the pastorate is not a job. It is not a career. Pastoral ministry is a call from God that must be answered. It's a call that must be obeyed whether or not the church we serve is in a position to give us a salary. If God calls a man to preach the gospel, if God calls a man to shepherd the flock, that man must fulfill his calling whether or not there is a financial reward for doing it. And what that means very practically for those of us in vocational ministry is that we must be willing to make sacrifices in order to fulfill our calling. At times that means that the pastor will need to become bivocational like the Apostle Paul. He will need to work an outside job in order to pay the bills and to put food on the table. At times it might mean the pastor will serve without any financial compensation. Just as we have unpaid elders right here in our congregation who are not paid for their ministry. Although each pastor, each missionary will one day need to stand before the Lord to give an account of their own decisions and their own motives regarding finances, I'm of the opinion it is wrong to turn down a ministry call because the salary is not what you are expecting it to be or because what you are hoping it to be. Far too many pastors in the Western world turn down ministry callings on the basis of dollars and cents and in my view, that is both a tragedy and a travesty. It is certainly not the lens through which Paul viewed his ministry and I hope and pray it will never be the lens through which I view my ministry calling whether here at Rosedale Baptist or anywhere else the Lord may call me to go in the future. Although it is true, although it is biblical, Every congregation must feel the weight of responsibility to provide a salary that is adequate. Any pastor who goes into the ministry in order to gain wealth and to get rich should not be in the ministry at all. And that person will have a great deal to answer for on the day of judgment. And to be very frank and honest with you, it almost makes me sick to my stomach when I turn on the television and see a whole company of false teachers, religious charlatans who are obsessed with money, who are living in the lap of luxury, and who are using gospel ministry as a means to line their own pockets and in the process to fleece the flock of God. Search the Scriptures, friends. You will see very quickly, greed is a distinguishing mark of a false teacher. And if you ever encounter a so-called pastor or missionary who is using their ministry as a means to get rich, there is a very good possibility that you are dealing with a wolf and not with a true shepherd who has been called and commissioned by God. Brothers and sisters, this text has principles for both of us. Principles that apply to you as the congregation. Principles that apply to me as the main teaching elder. And we need to take those responsibilities very seriously. We all need to double check that our motives are right in the eyes of the Lord when it comes to our finances. The first half of this chapter, Paul has been defending his apostolic identity. He has been stridently asserting his right to receive financial compensation. But now in the second half of the chapter, we discover Paul's motive for getting into this discussion in the first place. Paul has strongly emphasized his right to a financial reward so that he can relinquish that right as an illustration of what true Christian liberty looks like and as an example for the church of Christ to follow. Verse 12 of our text, Paul gives valuable insight into why in this particular situation he has chosen not to exercise his right to demand a salary from the church. Verse 12, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ key idea here in verse 12 that links Paul's discussion about finances with the larger issue of Christian liberty is Paul's assertion that he would rather endure hardship than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. That is a very important link in Paul's argument, so please don't miss it. Here in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is identifying with the stronger brothers in chapter 8 who are insisting upon their right to eat meat that was offered to idols and who are exercising that right even though it was causing some of the weaker brothers in the church to fall into sin. Back in chapter 8, verse 9, Paul told the stronger brothers in Corinth to take care lest this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. And now in chapter 9, verse 12, he's showing the stronger brothers. He is willing to practice what he preaches with respect to a slightly different issue, the issue of finances. Just as the Corinthians had a right to eat meat that they'd purchased from the market, so Paul has a right to receive a salary from the church. Rights, liberties are involved in both of these examples, but in both examples there is potential to cause spiritual harm to those who are weaker and less knowledgeable in the faith. In the case of the meat-eating Corinthians, Paul knew the unrestrained demanding of rights would lead some of the vegetarians to violate their conscience and therefore to commit a sin against God because they were not acting in faith. And so he calls upon the meat eaters in chapter 8 to use discretion, to use wisdom in the exercise of that liberty. And in like manner, we now discover that if Paul stands upon his right, if Paul demands a salary from the church, he may in the process be placing a stumbling block in the way of the gospel. Perhaps some of the weaker Christians in the church would misinterpret Paul's motives. Perhaps they would conclude that he was taking the money in order to cozy up to the wealthy church members. That he was being motivated by pride and a desire to climb a little bit higher on the social ladder. Or maybe Paul thought that some of the non-Christians outside the church who saw him receiving money from the Christians would misunderstand what was happening and would conclude that he was just another opportunistic philosopher making a good living by providing entertainment. And so, friends, even though Paul had the absolute right to draw a salary from the Corinthians, he had a right to live in a more comfortable and financially secure situation. His refusal to accept that money demonstrates that he has a higher motive that is driving him forward in ministry. Paul did not want money to get in the way of the gospel. And because of that, he makes a deliberate choice not to exercise his rights in this situation. He makes a deliberate choice not to place his concern for the weak and for the lost above his own personal comfort. And in so doing, Paul is providing an example for all of us. Paul is setting an example for the meat-eating Corinthians. By extension, he sets an example for all of the stronger brothers in every age and in every church who are sometimes tempted to insist on our rights and liberties when it is not appropriate for us to do so. As a stronger brother who perfectly understands his rights and liberties, Paul also understands there are times and there are circumstances where the good and the godly thing to do is not to exercise our right, but rather to relinquish our rights, to humbly lay them down for the greater good of the advancement of the gospel. Paul's first reason for laying down his rights is given to us in verse 12, but there is a second reason that he explains in verses 15 to 18. I want to reread those verses. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Verse 15, Paul makes it very clear. He is not writing this chapter in order to secure a salary from the Corinthians. Paul is not trying to guilt trip them in some kind of sneaky and underhanded way. Because the fact is, even if the Corinthians offered to give him a salary, Paul would have returned the check for the reasons that we've already discussed. But in addition to that, Paul did not want to take the money because he saw this financial sacrifice as an act of worship before the Lord. What he describes in verse 15 as his ground for boasting. You know, I think it's fairly easy for us to get the wrong impression here when Paul speaks about boasting, perhaps to conclude that Paul is refusing to take this money because he's a conceited person, because he has a martyr complex because he wants to be able to boast and to brag about all the great sacrifices he's made for the cause of Christ. That isn't what he's saying there at all. For Paul has already told us at the very end of chapter 1, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. No, friends, the boasting Paul speaks about in verse 15 is not some form of self-centered arrogance. This is one way that Paul can worship the Lord. Because when all is said and done, the reward that Paul is seeking from God is not a financial one, it's a spiritual one. And as the Apostle Paul says in verse 15, he would rather die than give an opportunity to worship and to honor his God in this way. You no, know, for honest, Paul's dismissive attitude towards his personal rights, towards his financial portfolio will seem very, very strange. For we are living in a culture where both of these things are taken for granted. Here in North America, we live in a culture where personal rights and freedoms are almost never questioned, almost never laid aside for anyone or for anything. We live in a culture where opportunities for financial gain and advancement are hardly ever turned down. But here in 1 Corinthians 9, we see the Apostle Paul voluntarily laying aside his rights, voluntarily giving up his financial gains, and it hardly gets more countercultural than that. You know, friends, the only reason why Paul can do this so willingly, so joyfully, is because Paul sees himself as God's slave and not as the Corinthians' employee. That takes us back, by the way. 1 Corinthians 4 preached on this text. Now this is how one should regard us as slaves of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. May I say to you this morning, no pastor should ever see himself as the employee of a church who is merely getting paid to preach and to do a 9-to-5 job. Friends, no offense. You do not pay me to preach to you. You do not pay me to sit in an office. I will preach whether or not you pay me because that is what God has called and commissioned me to do. And if for some reason in the upcoming budget meetings you are to cut my salary in the next budget, that does not mean that I will stop preaching. It merely means that life will be more challenging for me. It will be more difficult for me to put food on the table and to provide a living for my family. You get the point here? A true gospel minister does not see himself as a paid employee of the church, but as a slave of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says in verse 16, Preaching the gospel gives him no ground for boasting. Necessity is laid upon him. When you are a paid employee, you can boast about getting a salary. You can boast about doing your job well. When you're a slave, you have nothing to boast about. You have no say in the matter. A slave will do his duty whether or not he gets a paycheck. A slave will do his duty whether or not he gets an encouraging slap on the back. And this is exactly how Paul saw himself. It's the way that all of us should see ourselves as Christians. Not as employees who are doing God a tremendous favor by working hard in his kingdom. Rather as slaves who have been called and commissioned to serve the Master, to joyfully and willingly do whatever He asks us to do. You know, friends, here in North America, we love to speak about our liberty. Just go to America. We love liberty. We love to speak about free will. We love to say things like, God is a gentleman who will never violate your liberty. He will never violate your free will. You'll notice Paul never speaks about his ministry this way in the New Testament. Paul never talks about his conversion that way. Paul never talks about his call to ministry that way. Really, when you stop and think about it, how could he? When it came to his conversion, Paul was using his free will to persecute and to kill Christians until one day he was freely walking in rebellion along the road to Damascus when God rudely interrupted him. God stopped him dead in his tracks. God blinded him by a light. God incapacitated him for days. God revealed a startling new plan for his life that was going to include a great deal of suffering and pain. But yet we repeat that mantra, God's a gentleman who will never violate your free will. I don't think so. Thank God that he does violate our free will or else none of us would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, Paul was under no delusion that he used his depraved, fallen free will to choose a relationship with Christ. Paul was not under the delusion that he used his free will to choose some great new career in the ministry. For what does Paul say to us in verse 16 about his ministry and the exercise of his free will? Necessity is laid upon me. Woe if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. You know, Paul's attitude towards his ministry here in 1 Corinthians, Paul's self-identity as a slave of Jesus Christ, closely reflects something that the Lord Jesus said himself in Luke 17. Jesus said, Will any of you who have a slave plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the slave because he did what he was commanded to do? So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, are to say, we are unworthy slaves and we have only done what was our duty. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you an important question this morning in response to the Word of God that is hardly ever uttered in the church of Christ because it is so terribly offensive to our modern day notions of liberty and freedom and personal autonomy. Do you, Christian believer, see yourself as one of God's employees who is doing the Lord a great big favor by coming to church, by being part of His kingdom work, or do you see yourself in the way that Paul saw himself? as a slave of Jesus Christ, under spiritual compulsion to do his spiritual duty for the glory of the Master, whether or not there was anything in it for him. You know, the only way that Paul's teaching in this chapter is intelligible or applicable for us is if we learn to see ourselves, as the Bible describes us, as slaves of the Lord Jesus. That is the only way that Paul's radical action makes sense It is only if we understand the great paradox of the Bible, the only way for a Christian to be truly free, the only way for a Christian to be truly happy in this life and in the life to come is to submit joyfully, to submit fully to the Master, to commit our lives to doing His will no matter what it will cost. It is to say with the Apostle Paul, necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Friends, the scandal, the great paradox here in this inspired chapter of the Word is that the pathway to true liberty in Christ only comes when we commit ourselves to the lordship of Christ and see ourselves as His slaves. We live in a culture that is constantly and loudly demanding our rights and our liberties and our freedoms, but as Christian men and women, we must prayerfully consider how the demanding of our rights will reflect on the gospel we proclaim, how the demanding of our liberties will further the gospel mission and message in this fallen world. For Christians, we serve a king who is willing to give up his rights in order that we might be set free from our chains, in order that we would be brought into his family. Philippians 2, we read, This king of heaven did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. King Jesus was willing to give up his rights. And he did it so that you and I who believe in him, who repent of our sin, can be freed from the chains of our sin. May I suggest this morning, Christian brothers and sisters, it is impossible for a true believer to stand under the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ and to stubbornly demand your rights and your liberty. So you also, Jesus said, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. Amen.